0: Uh, But if you want a Bible, open up to Galatians 3.26. I want to read Galatians 3.26 and also move around to um, um, all the way into chapter 4. So let me pull that up real quick and we'll get started. Okay, the Apostle Paul says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Uh, it's probably been almost 20 years now since I heard uh, Tim Keller do a sermon on this particular passage and have read study guides of his on Galatians and a lot of his work in the area of, um, of um, uh, Martin Luther's commentary uh, on Galatians has come from this, so give credit where credit is due in that sense. But notice in the verses that we just read, Paul is talking about something being sent in verses 5 and 6. God sent his son into the world so that he could redeem the world. Why? So that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's what you have translated there, the adoption as sons. But you'll find in different translations, depending on what you're reading, that that little phrase will shift a little bit. And it's because they're trying to wrap their mind around that word. What, What Paul is literally saying, if you were to translate it in literal English... He's saying that you, you, you were receiving, when Christ did what he did, sonness, <laughs> childness, sonship, if you will. And that's the reason why they break it out into this, this phrase, "adoption as sons." Um, look, Paul was talking about something that would have immediately been known in the Greco-Roman world in which he was ministering. And that is a, a, an experience of family management known as adoption. Uh, and it's absolutely beautiful, and it's beautiful for all kinds of reasons. It was, it's so much so we're going to look at it this week, and then Clay Dabbs is going to look at it again next week uh, as we sort of consider this, but there's not a whole lot of more transformational truths that we can look at in the order of salvation, the study we've been doing this winter, uh, than to look and consider as you spend that diamond one more time that not only did God secure for us a legal status as not guilty before the judge of all the earth, like we talked about last week, in justification. But now we find that that justification was intending to secure for us something in family terms. And there's really not a better way to get at some of the heart of Christian experience than to look at the doctrine of adoption. Again, Paul was talking about a legal transaction that would have happened when a wealthy person who had no heir would try to do something as they came to the end of their life to secure their inheritance. When all the papers came through, their status had completely changed. Uh, Francis Lyle, in his book, uh, Slaves, Citizens, and Sons, says this. He says, The profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous estate and placed in a new relationship of the son to to his new father. All his old debts were instantly canceled, And in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of this new family. On the one hand, the father owned all of his offspring's property and controlled his personal relationships and had the rights of discipline. But, listen to this, on the other hand, the father was liable for the actions of the adoptee and each owned the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. In other words, it means that when that person came in and was officially adopted, They received what the Westminster Confession calls in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this little document that we use to summarize all the major points of our theology in our denomination. It says that they received the full rights of sons with all of the rights and privileges of being sons. We actually are joined into a family. Um, A number of years ago, and I'm going to return to this illustration as we get through it, Um, I was talking to a friend who was helping me to counsel another, a former student in another city. And the life of this former student had really just fallen apart. Uh, They had had what the doctors refer to as a psychotic episode. Some of you may be more or less familiar with these kinds of things. But he really found himself in a place of really utter helplessness to be able to know what to do. And my friend was attempting to counsel this person about what he should do and what next step he should take. And in the midst of our sort of strategizing, my friend was saying, he said, look, when you reach moments of nadir, like the one that this guy is at, you just go home. That's what you do. He said, the meaning of home is where you go, where I need a safe place. I need a place to retreat from it all. Home is that spot. And so what you begin to find is, is you find a great spiritual question there. What is it that you turn to when you reach the nadir of your life? Because your real religion is whatever you turn to when the chips are down. The the places that you go seeking for comfort and support and help, when all of a sudden the world starts crumbling down around you, really is the essence of your religion, regardless of what you profess or regardless of where your church membership is. Adoption will help you think about what our real place is because everything that God has been planning in eternity is summed up in this. And the crazy thing about it is, is there's really no other world religion that makes this claim. Through Christ, your creator can be your father. That's the claim. No other world religion gets, every other religion says you can know God as your creator and then become his servant. You become his citizen. You can become his slave. But only Christianity says the whole purpose of God beginning this this ministry of reconciliation is not just to sort of bequeath on you a legal status of not guilty and good luck with that, but to draw you in, into the best of families, into the family that our earthly families were meant to be a picture of, not the other way around. Look, so much so that J.I. Packer says it this way. This is one of those quotes that you just have to hear multiple times in your life. And so chalk up one of these on the, on the board here. J.I. Packer says this, and he, only he can say this like this. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well At all. Wow. Look, when you start talking about adoption today, there's a whole lot of people that will say that they have a hard time talking about this because of their bad associations with their earthly fathers. Um, And I simply want to respond to that because the generations that are coming up, we find, are less and less in homes where you have fathers that are ones to be appreciated. Um, You know, one preacher one time said that in in the 70s, when I was growing up, one out of every 20 births was a birth without a father, but today it's like one in four. One in four births is without a father in the home, which is staggering. But here's what I want to say. Even those of us who grew up in homes with loving and nurturing fathers, um, <laughs> like even in those homes, what you find out, like Ginger and I had to find out in the space of about nine months, the best of fathers die and pass away. And I know that for many of us, when we talk about fatherhood, there's a whole ocean of emotions that come out about complications with our earthly father. But I simply want to leave you with, start with this before we launch into this anymore this morning. Does not the sense of it feeling absent suggest to you a longing of what should have been there? In other words, even if you look and say, I had a terrible father who was an ultimate failure, Doesn't that suggest to us that we were built for something better? That I know this was supposed to be right. I know that fathers are not supposed to pass away and leave us as orphans. I know that fathers are not supposed to move out of the house and go into other places. I know that's true. And so even if you could appeal just to that, perhaps you can grasp a little bit about what Paul Paul is saying here. Three things about adoption. We're going to race through these this morning. The theology of adoption we're going to look at. Uh, The spirit of adoption, that'll be the bulk of what we talk about. And then finally, how do you get it? How do I get the spirit of adoption? Uh, We'll end on something hopeful there. So the theology of adoption. I don't know whether this guy adopted these children or not. Just looked like a good picture of a sweet family. It's a father who did not leave. Two quick things about the, the theology of adoption. This won't take but a second. Number one, our sonship is sort of like the Lord Jesus' sonship to the father. It's a big deal. When you you get a new child in adoption, from what I hear from people who have adopted children, one of the big thresholds to be able to cross over is to convince that child that you care about it as much as you do your actual children. Well, the beauty of of God's adoption is God doesn't struggle with with that problem. Because he is perfect, it is impossible for him to love his adopted children less than he loves His own son, Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' conversation with his father in John 17? You need to go back and read this because this this is a crazy moment to hear about the conversation that goes on between the son and his father. And at one point in that prayer, he says, Father, you have loved them. Talking about the disciples and those who would believe in Jesus through his disciples, you have loved them even as you have loved. In other words, God is saying that there will be a sense in which I'm going to draw you into the same love that I have for my son Jesus. And it's fun to let your imagination kind of go with this. Um, I had one professor in seminary challenge us to say, what must it have been like for Jesus to return to his father after the resurrection? Remember, he ascended on the cloud and He goes kind of up into the presence of God, wherever that is. He goes back into heaven. What must the reception have been like when the father brings his son home, having accomplished it to perfection his task that he wanted to send his son to do? What was that like? Let your imagination go with whatever cosmic ethereal party went down about that. Because God is saying, if you can't get a picture of that, then you're not gonna see what it's like for me to have you into my family. It's no less than this is one of the reasons why I've said that your real religion is what you turn to when the chips are down, when things look hopeless, because so oftentimes I look for that consolation in a thousand different places other than the one that God wanted us to. And that is in knowing that we, that, that we are his children. That's the reason why we go home. But secondly, there is a sense in which our adoption is somewhat unlike the relationship that Jesus had to his father. In other words, when we say that we are going to be in his family, we do not mean, like some Eastern religions might teach, that we are somehow absorbed uh, into the the, the deity, and we ourselves become little gods in the midst of that. We're not creating our own reality. What we're doing is is we are actually coming into a family. Romans 8 says this, uh, verse 22, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, listen, as we eagerly await for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, this is huge. <laughs> it says that there are some things about our adoption that are already true, but there is a sense in which it is not yet true what it will be fully revealed as. Sometimes we sing this song, uh, 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 in in church, uh, the 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 great song, uh, the great Samuel Rutherford did uh, in Emmanuel's land. You know the, the, the sands of time are sinking, and one of my favorite lines in that hymn is, "The streams on earth I've tasted, uh, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean fullness, His mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land." In other words, what God gives us. In, on earth are little drops, what, 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 what John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said, little cordials that the Father will drop upon his people. And in the midst of that, those little drops that come upon them, um, they are given to us to give us a little taste of what will happen, but it's nothing compared to what's due for us in that day, which is a perfect lead-in to the second point, the theology of adoption. Secondly, the spirit of adoption. And this is the reason why the Galatians passage is so helpful. You see, because in verse 6, something else is happening. There is an agent that is sent to do something. But the agent in verse 6 is not the Son, but the Holy Spirit. We touched on this a little bit last week, but that's why it comes out big time here. This, The Spirit is not sent into the world, but rather He is sent into our hearts. When the Holy Spirit comes to do His job... Um, it is not a, a, a work of redeeming, but it's a work of helping us call out, to cry out. And the result of the Spirit's working is not a legal and objective status as sons, like we talked about in, uh, 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 last week in justification. But are you ready for this? The Spirit's work is to give you a subjective experience of your God so that you can refer to Him as Daddy. Now, this is crazy because many of you are looking at being like, you know, I like having come to a Presbyterian church, but there's some things I don't like coming to a Presbyterian church because here we are terrified of ever talking about our feelings. Well, we're about to have 15 minutes on our feelings this morning because this is a big deal because you've got to see what it is that's promised here. Look what's promised. The whole outline just came up. I'd normally do them one by one, but now you can see where we're going with this. Look, what is promised to us is, a, is an experience we already have the status. Being a child of God is assumed in this passage. What it's saying is that God sends the Spirit into our hearts for a subjective experience of his love that is a whole different realm from our legal status. In other words, he's going into us to help us feel like we are children of God. And boy, what a big, what a big discussion this is. You claim what the Son does. You make a claim to what Jesus the Son does. But you experience what the Spirit does here. Um, Look, this is one of these things that comes to us in a very vivid way. And we as Reformed Christians, uh, we call ourselves the Reformed tradition because it's out of the Reformation. That's what the word Reformed means. But we claim a lot of this uh, uh, that's over and against a lot of the experience-centered world out there. Like, you know, I grew up in a church less, and I was very much like this, where the experience was the essence of your religion. And thank goodness, you wonderful Presbyterians, you're more interested in my mind. Oh, but that actually is unfair to our forebearers, because there is a huge amount of writing that was done by the Puritans, and even modern-day Puritans, like Sinclair Ferguson, uh, about the spirit of adoption. Uh, Sinclair has this wonderful, um, his friends call him Sinclair, Sinclair. Um, He has this wonderful little book called The Children of the Living God and a chapter called The Spirit of Adoption. He talks about what happens when the prodigal son comes home. Do you remember this? The prodigal son is is feeding slop to pigs, which is the worst job he could have. And he suddenly remembers that the slaves in his father's house have it better off than he does. And so what does he do? He kind of picks up and he rehearses this, this speech, does he not? And the speech goes like this. Father, I am not even worthy to be called your son just let me live on your estate as one of your hired men. Remember that part in, this, in the thing? But then as he journeys home, his father sees him coming from a far way off and he comes and welcomes him. And the funny thing is, is the servant, or the son, doesn't even get half of his little speech out. Father, I no longer be worried to call your son. And the father's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Start the party. You're home. He won't even let him go into his hole, make me a slave again, not a son. And Ferguson sees something significant about this. Listen to this. This was was as transformational a paragraph as I read when I got out of seminary. I hope it's good for you. Although the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is probably the best known and loved of all of Christ's parables, the lesson it teaches us is often overlooked. Jesus was underlining the fact that (laughs) that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing in the world to dawn on us. As we fix our eyes upon ourselves, our past failures, and our present guilt, it seems impossible that the Father should love us. So many Christians, this was the line that moved me, so many Christians go through much of their lives with the prodigal suspicion. Their concentration is on all their faults and their failure. All their thoughts are introspective. And that's why in the Greek, John's te- the text, John's statement in 1 John 3, 1 about the Father's love begins, behold, what manner of love is this? Like the prodigal, we have a native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. We are slow to realize the implications of this. We have the status of sons, but we struggle with the mindset of a hired servant. Are you a slave or are you a son? Because what's funny is the the overflow of your life will answer that question for you. There's lots of Christians that can be like, yeah, yeah, Liz, I got it. Like, go move, next point. I know, I'm a child of God. Cool, awesome. Really? Do you know that? Sinclair Ferguson says, I'm not sure you know that. What's the difference between having a a, 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 a father-child relationship with God and having a boss-employee relationship with God? Why are you so sensitive to criticism? Why do you feel like such a failure? Why is it when disappointment comes, does it take us so long to live a normal life again? Why is it whenever you have to ask forgiveness from someone, there's never any joy in that restored relationship? Why does it feel like a death for you to say I'm sorry to someone, all for the purpose of restoring a relationship? Why are you secretly comparing yourself to other people all the time? Why are you filled with jealousy and bitterness and self-doubts? Because we can talk about believing in the doctrine of adoption, but until that experience comes over us, Where the Spirit comes in and actually changes our lives. The prodigal son may look to you to be very humble. Look how humble he was. But to some degree, the Father will not let him stay there. And it is not the normal Christian life to live in that state of misery. Um, uh, Keller told this story in a sermon on this about about a story about Alexander the Great, who apparently had a a soldier, sort of a a general of one of his, who uh, was low on money, but his daughter wanted to get married. And so this general goes into Alexander the Great and says, I need money, I don't have any, and my daughter wants to get married, and I want to be able to put on a good thing for her. And Alexander the Great says, that's fine, how much do you need? Well, then the soldier uncorks this, like, crazy amount of money, and Alexander the Great kind of sits back a little bit and grins a little bit and says, yes, it's all yours, now go. Well, as the man walks out, all of the attendees around Alexander the Great are being like, what? (laughs) You're going to give him that much? And Alexander says this in the midst of this, Whatever the story came out. He said, this man has done me a great honor by asking me for such a ridiculous sum because him doing so shows, shows that he believes me to be both fabulously wealthy and incredibly generous. That's the compliment he just showed me. So that when the prodigal son comes to the father and says what he says, he's basically saying, I don't believe you to be either wealthy enough or generous enough to actually make me a son. And that's an insult. Ferguson goes on. The reason why Paul, when he talks about the Holy Spirit in Galatians four six, is saying that if a fact that God has adopted us into His family, then the Spirit must come and assure us that that's true. The Spirit must enable us to live in the enjoyment of such a rich spiritual blessing. So, He sends His Spirit into our hearts, bringing us the deep, Spiritual and psychological security that rests in the objective fact that our sins are forgiven and we completely belong to the Lord. You know, in the parable, it comes like this. You know, the son doesn't believe that the father is wealthy enough or good enough, but, good enough. but you know what the father does? The first thing it records him doing is to kiss him. He leaps upon him and to kiss him, which leads it to uh, the great Baptist preacher, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You gotta remember that name. He's one of the important ones. Uh, our Reformed Baptist brothers are our brothers because of Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a Calvinist. And so he would come in and preach God's grace in the most beautiful of ways. And it, but he loved to preach just on a couple of words. He always had like, like the word thee. he preached a whole sermon on the word thee in this text. But he's got a sermon called, And He Kissed Him. And in the midst of that, he's talking about, uh, about this metaphor of the father coming and kissing the prodigal son. And he says, that's what we're after He says, we're not talking about that objective statement of God coming to us and and doing a work for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. He's talking about receiving a kiss that only the Spirit can give to us. Uh, And and Martin Lloyd-Jones actually dredges up an old illustration from Thomas Goodwin. He was an older Puritan from way back in the day, the 1700s or so, who told a story about walking down a street, and I told this recently, and seeing a father walking along with his son, And as they're walking down the street, suddenly the father, for no reason that Goodwin could ascertain, scoops up his child and pulls him up in his arm and he just gives him a big kiss. And Godwin said he suddenly thought about it. He said, did the status of the child change as they were walking down the street? Absolutely not. He was no more a child in his father's arms than he was simply walking alongside him. But oh, how much greater... What's the experience of his sonship in the moment of being in his father's arms? That's what God was talking about. That's what Galatians is talking about. This is exactly being described. So Spurgeon goes on to talk about this. I've used this illustration on the union with Christ one. He said, some of us have known what it means to be too happy to live. The love of God has been so overwhelmingly experienced by us on some occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight, for we couldn't endure it anymore. If God had not shielded his love and glory just a bit, I think we would have died for joy. Puritans used to talk about this stuff all the time. Maybe we should talk about it a little bit more. Look, I know that there's a danger of becoming too experience centered. I don't know if that will ever be our problem, like in this room. I mean, mind you, Spurgeon was speaking back in Victorian England, you know. The, the, those were experience avoiders. Um, the, 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 the Victorian sensibilities were way too refined to talk about experience. And well, today, we're probably much too experience hungry, maybe not here, but in the rest of the world. But even that's wrong. Only the gospel balances this. Because it keeps you from being experience avoiders because of the Holy Spirit's work. But it keeps you from being experience-centered because of what the Spirit comes to do. Because the Spirit doesn't come to draw attention to the Spirit, but it comes to draw attention to Jesus. Ooh, more on that in just a second. Let's go into what its marks are. Very simply, passion and feeling. Crying out, Abba, Father. That word that you've got there that says crying out is too weak. It should be, it should be a shouting out. It should be a desperate grasping. In other words, there's a profound desire to sort of have passion on the inside, that there's something that's actually moving me. It's inferential. It's intuitive. It's something to sit down and, and work through and to experience. You don't have to like walk through it. You say, yes, it's true. I just know it. I don't know how I know it, but it's here. Intimacy in prayer, to all of a sudden not be praying as if I'm self-conscious about where I am. But praying in a sense of just the outpouring of my heart. Of just things are just coming out in the way in which I talk with a friend. There's times in which this will happen in public. Have you ever been in a public prayer service and someone will start to pray? And after about halfway through, you're just kind of going, I feel like someone should write this down. Like this is kind of, you're kind of going. And what's weird is you'll go back to that person later and they'll be like, I don't really remember what I, was, what I was talking about. I think that's part of what we're talking about here. And lastly and hugely, a sense of assurance. Assurance of our salvation. There is no study like the study through the, 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 the Ordo Salutis, to learn about our sense of assurance. Every Christian is longing to have a sense of knowing that they're secure in Christ. And no other world religion bothers with this, by the way, you know. In every other world religion, you can never know if you're really in. But in, but in Christianity, you can have assurance to say, Abba, Father, which is baby talk for daddy. And it's really fun to think about that, that a child, especially when they're little, really doesn't, it doesn't have any doubt about your, the certainty of your provision for them. Do they not? So much so that when you don't provide it, they just demand it. I don't care how long I got to roll on the ground. I don't care how long I got to cry. But you're here to meet my needs, tall person. Get to it. They just know that there's something intuitive. They just assume that they are important. You know? To me, it's most vivid when you have to take your child out because they're shouting in the worship service, which no one is bugged by, by the way. I mean, just, yeah, no one is bugged by that. Don't be embarrassed where you're like, oh, get them out of here. But I just love the fact that that child is like, I don't care how many people are in here. A scene? There is no scene. I've got some needs to be met, and you're supposed to provide them. How loud do I got to shout? There's just something beautiful about that. The audaciousness. Look, the sense of assurance comes that I have a boldness to boldly approach the throne of grace uh, like a child does. Okay, look, that's a big deal. How do we get this? This is so nuts uh, and so beautiful. Verse six says, because you are sons. Look, this means that you can't divorce verses six six and seven from verses four and five because the Spirit comes on the basis of the work of Jesus. And the Spirit is available because of the work of Jesus. What this means is we do not get what the Spirit brings by focusing on the Spirit because that's actually not what the Spirit does. R.C. Sproul would say, in in lessons past, we took a little bit of issue with this, but R.C. Sproul would say that the Spirit is kind of the shy member of the Trinity because he's constantly pointing away from himself to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. He's showing me someone else. In other words, you don't look, you don't get to what these old Puritans were talking about in these experiences of adoption by saying, hit me with an experience, Lord, give me the experience. I'm waiting for something to happen. No, you don't ask. What you do is you worship. The way in which we get it is through worship. And as you're looking at Him and thinking about Him, there are times, is it the normal Christian life? Probably not. But should there be those moments where I look back and say, no, 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 I remember He showed up there. Like it happened in that place. Look, worship is that moment where we begin to find something beautiful in and of itself. It's not a conjuring up. It's simply investigating something long enough until we uncover the nugget of joy that's in there. We know it's there. It's got to be there. If for no other reason than all these other religious people around me who claim to have had this experience and don't walk away from it for that reason, allow it to get yourself curious. Look, there is something about worship that means that I'm not there so that it gets me something. Jonathan Edwards was it was an extraordinary help. You know, Jonathan Edwards, this great sort of 18th century um, a theologian up in New England, one of the early part of the people who helped teach the first Great Awakening. Edwards was the one who would come along and say, "When Christ roots himself in the affections." And what he's talking about there is he's talking about that seat of what you find beautiful. What happens when you find something beautiful in and of itself? You don't have to tell yourself to enjoy that thing. When was the last time when you lost track of time because you were watching a movie that just completely scooped you up? That you literally had no idea. You were trying to figure out where you were. Maybe you sat and watched a sunset. It was just so heartbreakingly beautiful, you just had to sigh after it. You didn't even know where it was carrying, carrying you. Well, the funny thing about those experiences is it's, it, there, it wasn't a means to an end. The thing itself was the enjoyment of itself. The, that is the seat of your beauties, of what you find to be beautiful, beautiful. And so in the end, what really transforms us are these moments of beauty. Look, y'all, when we gather together, for worship the reason, the goal, the, 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 the experience that we are wanting for Sunday morning worship, is to freshly find that thing of beauty again that would keep a, that, that has been distracted by a thousand different beauties. My career looked to be very beautiful this week, we would say. It was something that I landed the big sale. I, I won the big case. I I, I close the big client. And that looks at us and says, ah, there's something beautiful because it feeds me. But it's so short-lived, isn't it? There are times in which we can look and say, I looked at my children and wanted them to be obedient to me was my life. There was a beauty there. And I found that that idol of my own children's happiness can sometimes bless me and sometimes it curses me when they grow wills of their own and they walk away, and they don't take their greatest joy in me anymore. It's hard, isn't it, mamas? I, I, I used to nurture this, and in, in, I used to talk to people uh, who are, who are have, freshly aware of, of emptiness syndrome in, in, the, in the dorms when they were moving their children in. When I, when I worked for RUF, we would go through the dorms on move-in day to sort of greet people, and I would give them invitations to RUF. Um, it's funny, parents loved me. Uh, college freshmen did not. Uh, it, it was quite, quite, it's like, oh, good, the minister's here. <laughs> the parents were like, oh, this is wonderful, I'm so glad you're here. What time isn't Bible study start? <clears throat> <laughs> emptiness syndrome. What is emptiness syndrome? Emptiness syndrome is when that idol of your children's adoration of you is ripped from you. And suddenly we realize that this thing that I said would be an ultimate joy can't be it. So, part of finding something beautiful in Christ, is realized that all the other beauties that could take an ultimate ascendancy in my life, man, they're just a little tarnished. They don't, they don't last. They don't... It's like, it's like the law of diminishing returns, you know? There's a, it's a buzzkill. But what if there was a comparison at every turn to the inadequacies of my other idols? that we're swept up in the fatherhood of God that never lost its luster and that we know is already here but not yet revealed to us what its fullness would be. Remember what Paul says in Romans 18? We eagerly await for his return, the revelation of our our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, we've got something of our adoption, but we can't wait for when it finally is revealed what it actually will be. Look, you're looking and looking until you find something that's like, wow, that's really beautiful, and it's transformational. I, I can't talk about the idea of, of transformation and uh, beauty without talking about uh, uh, my, one of my favorite all-time movies, uh, Babette's Feast. Babette's Feast won the 1986 uh, Best Foreign Film, and it's the simple story of a, a highly religious uh, uh, Dutch village uh, sometime around the turn of the century that is visited by uh, a, 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 a woman who has been run out of France uh, from, the, uh, from all of the uh, civil wars going on in France. And as she comes and sort of engages herself in the life of this community, she finds that this community is completely broken. Uh, they argue all the time. They bicker with one another. They're in the midst of all kinds of fights and backstabbings, and they have nothing to say but gossip towards each other. It's just a broken loop, But they are all very religious, very pious. And throughout the movie, you see the ministers among them trying so hard to get them over their battles. But you know, it never works. They just get worse and worse. Until such a time as this French you know, refugee comes into their household and decides that on the basis of having won a huge amount of money from a lottery that she kept from her time in France, she's going to cook them a meal. And it's amazing to watch the cinematography of this movie as it goes from very gray and bland to, to, to sparkling beauty as she lays out this extraordinary meal for these people. And over and over again, you watch the people as they, as they taste this incredible food. Because what they don't know is that this beggar woman from France was actually at a time the most sought after chef in all of Europe. That, that, that it says in the movie that when people would come and dine at her table, that it was like a love affair. That French generals would say, look, you know, there's hardly, I, I've seen a lot of things, and there's a lot of things that I would not give up, you know, to get the things that I want. But I tell you what, I'd give up a lot to be sitting and have a meal by this woman. And here she is in this tiny little poverty-stricken, argumentative little village, and she does this unbelievable act of beauty. And the movie is so perfect because you just watch as they sort of taste and see the goodness all around them. Suddenly all their objections just start to melt. (laughs) Suddenly all they do, they look at each other and their relationships are repaired as they smile at each other for the first time in years. Now what happened? Did they focus on their fighting? Did they beat themselves up for their lack of faithfulness in in their being an agreeable community? No. They sat and tasted that the Lord was good. They heard his fatherly benediction. And in those moments, they walked away changed. Why did you come here this morning? <laughs> what, what, what is the meaning of our gathering? If it's not to stand and to gaze upon the beauty, beauties of the Lord and the wonder of his holiness and the joy that comes that we together are joint heirs together with Christ and children of Jesus.